Good morning. Our message this morning is going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 2. You do have an outline in your bulletin. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This morning, as we think about the Christ, this part of the Christmas story, it's interesting to think that most people get their understanding of the Christmas story from tradition rather than from the Bible. Uh, for example, think of the Christmas cards you might have received, okay? Three wise men, or even three kings with crowns on their head, riding their camels across the desert with the star overhead. And then you might have a Christmas card with a nativity scene. And in that nativity scene, you have the shepherds on one side of the manger, and you have the wise men on the other side, just as if they had all come in the same night. Well, a lot of that is tradition, and it's not borne out by our text this morning. Did you notice in verse 11, it says that the wise men found Jesus and his mother. Of course, his dad isn't mentioned here, but he was in a house, and it calls him here in verse 11 a child, not a baby. And so from the time that the... Uh, Wise men saw the star in the east till they took their long journey. It was probably at least over a year 
from the time the shepherds were there to visit the Christ baby in the manger. So that's why Herod uh, tried to check the time so carefully, and then he killed all the children from two years old and younger so that he would be sure to get the Christ child and kill him. Well, we'd like to look at the identity of the magi or the wise men. The, ma the word magi actually comes straight from the Greek New Testament into our New American Standard Bible. Other versions uh, put uh, the wise men, which is actually a translation then of the magi. And so we'll be using either term, the wise men or the magi. Well, I've actually heard messages that says we can't learn very much about the Magi. But I would like to share with you this morning some verses from the book of Daniel that tell us quite a bit about the wise men uh, and what, who they were and what, to what class of men they belonged. Well, they were an educated and a privileged class of men who were advisors to the king. He would consult with them because they used different means of divination to discover the meaning of events and circumstances that the king would experience. So he looked to them and he needed them. And if you would turn to Daniel chapter 1, you would find that Daniel and his three friends were chosen uh, to be educated and trained so that they could join this group of wise men. So Daniel is right after Ezekiel, if you haven't found it for a while. Look in Daniel chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And so these four were part then of what would have been considered the wise men, this class of advisors to the king. If you look in chapter 2, it tells us, I believe it's a 20, verse 27 in Daniel chapter 2. It describes some of these men, and it calls them wise men, conjurers, magicians, and diviners. In another place in Daniel, two other words were used, the Chaldeans and sorcerers. And so the word wise men would be just a general term to describe all of these advisors. But specifically, they were the group of men who studied the stars and the planets because they believed that the heavenly movements influenced what happened on earth. 
Well, we find out later in chapter 2 of Daniel that uh, after he interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, he was promoted. Look in chapter 2 and verse 48. It says, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And so Daniel was in a very high position uh, during the Babylonian kingdom. And as we read further in Daniel, the book, we find out that he served under the Persian Empire for the rest of his life, and he gave further prophecies. Well, think about it. With Daniel in such a high position over the wise men uh, during two different empires, surely something of what he had said or written would be remembered. I think especially Daniel's prediction about the succession of kingdoms that would follow Babylon. Uh, these came true, and these men could see that fulfillment. Uh, Daniel had also given a timeline to the Messiah in his prophecy of the 70 weeks of years, and that time was drawing very close. But I want to ask the question, what if the most important revelation that Daniel had shared had remained in the knowledge of the wise men. In chapter 2 and verse 44, I think this was the greatest part of Daniel's prophecy. Chapter 2, verse 44, uh, he said, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, and it will itself endure forever. And so Daniel had predicted an eternal kingdom that would endure forever that God would set up. And so to me, this answers the question why wise men from a faraway nation would be interested in the birth of a king in a little land of Judah, in the land of Israel. They were looking for that kingdom, that king. I also believe that probably a number of these wise men had become believers in the one true God because of Daniel. And we see this because both Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, during the two empires, they made proclamations about the God of Daniel. Read Darius's words here in Daniel chapter 6 and see if that didn't make a believer of some of these wise men. Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. It says, Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in the land, May your peace abound, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Wow, what a proclamation. 
to tell everyone to believe in the one true God, the God of Daniel. So this is the identification of the wise men. Next, let's look at the star. And uh, we have to say that there is no natural explanation for the appearance of the star. Uh, the manifestation of light that the wise men saw in the sky that they called a star was something extraordinary. It was something so unusual that these stargazers had to look for a special significance. Well, when I think about uh, the Old Testament and uh, a prophecy about a star, my mind goes way back to the time of Balaam. Does yours? Because one of the earliest prophecies in the Bible was by Balaam, and he talked about a star. Now, you may not know where Balaam came from, but if you, if you had turned to Numbers chapter 22 and verse 5, you would find that Balaam lived by the river. And in the New American Standard, the word river is capitalized. And that means the Euphrates River. And so Balaam came from the land of Mesopotamia, the same area that later became the kingdoms of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. And so he was one of these ancient seers at that time. And uh, his prophecy in chapter 24, I just quoted part of it here in my notes. Let me read it in verses 17 and 19. Balaam said this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. One from Jacob shall have dominion. So this is the only place I know in the Old Testament that connects a star, a heavenly manifestation, with a king of the Jews. Of course, we don't know how such a knowledge uh, remained for so many centuries there in that area of the East. But if the wise men knew Daniel's prophecy, and if they had inquired further of the Jews who were living in that area, remember the 10 tribes were taken over into the land of Mesopotamia, and most of them never came back to Israel. They remained there. And so these wise men could have found out the prophecy about Balaam. A star shall rise, and that would be a ruler who would come from Jacob. Well, let's look at their journey. And uh, one thing I can tell you is that three men did not ride camels straight across the Arabian desert. Uh, <laughs> if they did, uh, neither they nor their animals would have lived long enough to survive the journey. You don't go across the desert. And furthermore, if you were a person of wealth and position, you didn't ride on a camel either. So what can we learn about the journey of the wise men? Well, instead of going across the desert, they had to go and take the trade route, which went north along the Tigris River, and then they would follow it up to the top, and then they would come down through Syria back into uh, Israel. Uh, this trade route was actually, in this day, it was called the Royal Road. 
It was like a highway. And so these men would have gone over the Fertile Crescent, and that journey would have been over 800 miles. So uh, what can we learn about that journey? Well, interestingly, uh, let's go to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. You may remember that Nehemiah wanted to go back to his land and rebuild Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. And so he asked permission from King Artaxerxes of Persia to make that journey. Well, Nehemiah was the personal cupbearer of the king. So do you think he was a pretty important person to Artaxerxes? Yes. Yes. And Artaxerxes would not have allowed him to make such a journey over that trade route up and back down over 800 miles all by himself. Why? Because there's robbers, right? There's dangers. And so look what it says in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 9. When Nehemiah reaches the end of his journey over that trade route and then down, it says, then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, capital R, the Euphrates, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So Nehemiah didn't make that journey alone by any means. The king, to protect him, had sent a, a caravan with him. Uh, of his own officers, army, uh, men on horseback. So you think we can figure out something about the journey of the wise men then? Yes, I believe that they were in a caravan. They were not three lonely men. In fact, we're not told how many there were. But they certainly wouldn't have been going alone because on an 800-mile journey, you would have to what? You'd have to stop, make camp, prepare food, uh, take care of the animals. And so there must have been wagons with, uh, with the gear and the food. There must have been servants. And there certainly must have been soldiers to accompany the wise men because they were men of great status there in Persia area. And so they, can you understand now, when they arrived in Jerusalem, this were, these were not just three men. <laughs> this was a huge caravan. You see why it says Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled. Because this was a, a large delegation that had come from a distant country. This was an important thing. Well, let's look at the three responses that we find to Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. The first we'd like to discuss is Herod himself. There are a number of Herods in the Bible. It's easy to get them confused. Uh, this was Herod the Great. This was the first Herod. Uh, Herod was not a Jew. He was an Idumean. That meant he came from Edom. And he was a descendant of Esau rather than Jacob. So he was not a Jew at all. And the Romans had installed him as the ruler of Judah in 37 B.C. 
History tells us that he was one of the cruelest of kings. He stayed in power only by killing off all his rivals. And that included one of his wives and children as well, whom he viewed as a threat to his throne. So what do you think he felt when he heard that a king of the Jews had been born? One who had the rightful claim to rule over Judea. Well, we can certainly say that King Herod was threatened, wasn't he? He was threatened by the news of the birth of a Jewish king. And we also see his great deceit because he told the wise men, when you find him, let me know because I want to come and worship him too. But instead of doing that, his cruelty extended to the murder of innocent children from two years of age and younger. So Herod was one who was threatened by the coming of Jesus the King. Next in the story, we see the Jewish leaders that Herod summoned when, it, when he was asked by the wise men about where is the king. And these were the scribes, probably the Pharisees, the high priests, those who knew the Jewish scriptures. And it's interesting, they knew their Bible. And they got out the prophecy of Micah, which had been proclaimed over 700 years before. And they pointed to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Of course, they didn't have chapters and verses at that time. But they recited for Herod. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they told him, the child, the king, is to be born in Bethlehem. That's where they would find him. Well, what was their attitude toward Christ? I think we would have to say indifference, wouldn't we? Because even though they knew the scriptures, they could point to the exact place where the king was to be born. We have no record that they had any interest to join the wise men to go find the Christ. And you know, knowledge without faith leads to a dead religion. And this certainly described the Jewish religion at that time uh, during the life of Jesus Christ. That's why the Jewish leaders never accepted him. And eventually they sought his death. Well, the story is mainly about the wise men. And so we see that they had a wonderful response to the new king. Uh, when Herod found out where the king was to be born, he called the wise men back, and he told them to go to Bethlehem. That's where they would find the new king. And so they began their journey southward. It was about five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And it says here in Matthew chapter 2 that the star reappeared. See, it hadn't led them all the way on the trade route they didn't need a star to go on the royal highway there. 
But now it reappeared, and it went before them till it stood over the house where Jesus and his parents were staying, the young child. Now, if you, if you think about a star, uh, stars move from east to west, don't they? Have you watched them? <laughs> Did you ever see a, wa- a star go from north to south? No, they don't do that, do they? So again, we have a, a supernatural manifestation from God. So where else in the Bible do you see a manifestation of light moving and leading someone? Well, it's pretty obvious. You go back to uh, the book of Exodus, and when Moses made the tabernacle, and God's presence came to the tabernacle, and the Shekinah glory shone over that tabernacle. And every time the glory of God moved forward, the children of Israel, Moses and them, would follow the Shekinah glory. Well, we learn that uh, when Solomon erected the temple, that the tabernacle was no longer needed, and that the glory, the, the Shekinah glory of God, actually filled Solomon's temple, so much that the priests had to, had to leave the temple uh, as the glory of God came in. Well, that Shekinah glory stayed in Solomon's temple all the way up until the time of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 10 and chapter 11, Ezekiel describes right before the destruction of Jerusalem that the glory of God departed from the temple. And that's Shekinah glory, it says, left the temple and went over the eastern gate of Jerusalem, and then it went over the Mount of Olives as the glory of God departed from Israel. And so that glory was gone from Israel for over 500 years. But think of it now, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King, was here on earth. And now we have a return of God's glory, the Shekinah glory. I don't know if you noticed in the other story that Luke gives, the time when the shepherds were, uh, uh, when the angels came to the shepherds, but there is a striking statement there that when the shepherds appeared to the, I'm sorry, the angels appeared to the shepherds, it says the glory of the Lord shone all around the angels. So the glory of God returned that had left at the time of Ezekiel because the king, the Lord, was here. And so I believe it was that same glory, the Shekinah glory then, that reappeared and led the uh, wise men and stood right over the house where Jesus and his parents were. So why had they come to Bethlehem? They had come to worship the king. And it's uh, in the text here, it describes the, the most beautiful worship of all, that they, they became prostrate before the Lord, and, and they bowed down with their faces to the ground 
in complete humility and unworthiness to worship before the newborn, not the newborn, but the king, who is now a child, excuse me. Not only that, but they offered sacrificial gifts to the king. And I believe these were expressions of their faith, their personal faith, and their devotion to the Lord Jesus. Well, these gifts were precious, were they not? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The most valuable thing on earth at this time was gold, wasn't it? And so what would you give a king? You would give a king gold to acknowledge who he was, that he was the king. And this is recorded in the book of Matthew rather than in the book of Luke because the theme of Matthew is the Christ, that Christ is the king of the Jews. And so here we have Gentiles worshiping the king and offering precious gold. Well, the spices they offered were no less precious. Frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense had been used at the worship of the tabernacle, so we know it was very important to God. But these were used throughout the Near East. And frankincense and myrrh were the most valuable and precious spices that one would present to someone of high rank. Isaiah chapter 60 tells of the fact that when the wealth of the nations comes to Israel, that they would offer gold and frankincense. And so this is a kind of a fulfillment even of that. Well, not only were the, the gifts precious, but I believe the gifts were prophetic as well. They spoke, they prophesied about the, the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. What could gold signify when we think about who the Lord Jesus Christ was? Gold signified his purity, his divinity, the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. He was the true God. The next gift, frankincense, was a, was a great fragrance. And it spoke of the fragrance of the beautiful, perfect life of Jesus as the Son of Man. And of course, this was necessary for him to represent us as our substitute, that he be perfect and without sin. Myrrh was a well-known burial spice. In fact, it was used later after the Lord Jesus was laid in the tomb. Well, myrrh was a burial spice, and it speaks of Christ's sacrificial death as the suffering Savior who died for our sins. So here in the very story of the Magi, the wise men, coming to worship the Lord Jesus as the King, we have the gospel presented, don't we? Christ who was Lord, Christ who became perfect man, took upon him human nature. That one died on the cross in our place, suffered the penalty that we deserve for our sins so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be saved. Well, as we think of these three different 
responses to Christ the King. Uh, I think we could compare that to three different attitudes that people have today to Christ as well. There are people who hear the message of Christmas and then the message of the cross and they feel threatened. They are offended by our Christian message. Why? Because it tells them they're sinners, right? And because it asks something of them. They don't want a Lord to rule over them because they want to live life their own way according to their own desires and their own plans. And so there are many who reject the Christian message today because they have no use for it. And then like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we have to admit there are many people living today, even in our country, who have a head knowledge of the Bible, don't they? Uh, they even know the facts about who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. But their personal attitude remains one of indifference. And they have no desire to seek him, to repent, to personally receive the Lord as their personal Savior. Well, I believe the Lord wants all of us to be like the wise men, don't you? And uh, that means that like the wise men, we need to search, right? We need to seek the Lord for ourselves. Uh, Jeremiah had, the Lord said, you will seek me and you will find for me, find me when you search for me with all your heart. Some of us have been on that journey seeking the Lord. We know what that's like. And then when they found the Lord, they bowed in reverence and worship. And we too need to do that. We need to, in humility, repent of our sins. We need to acknowledge that we need the Lord to be our God, to rule over us. And then the wise men served the king with things of great value. And as our brother has shared in his message, uh, worshiping Jesus costs something. And if the Lord Jesus really means something to you, it will cost you something in service. Well, if we believe that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is going to set up that eternal kingdom that will endure forever, and we need to be looking forward to his coming, don't we? And we need to be ready. And we need to be servants of the Lord in our lives as well. I trust that God will do that in each of our hearts this morning. Shall we close in a word of prayer? Our Father, we are grateful this morning for uh, this message, for the, uh, Matthew's account of the coming of the Magi. And we marvel at men who would hold on to truth for so many years and then make such a long journey at personal cost so that they could worship you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for their love, their devotion, their faith that is expressed in their worship and their giving of their gifts. Lord, help us to be wise as well. Help us to seek you 
to love you, to serve you, to look forward to your coming so that this time of Christmas will be a real time of celebration for us. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you very much.